0: Acts chapter 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. So at the conclusion of Peter's sermon, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, and these were the religious leaders that denied the supernatural, especially the resurrection of the dead. They did not like that, and they contended with the Pharisees over that issue, among others. And they all descend upon Peter and the others. The temple was their turf, and now Peter... And the rest of them who were in chapter 2 brought about a conversion of 3,000 people into their sect, as they would refer to the followers of Jesus. And as the priests saw it, they were invading their seat of power, threatening it. Verse 2, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So there's two things there, Jesus, who they had thought they got rid of when they gave him a totally unfair, illegal trial and executed him. That was the first thing. And the second thing was this resurrection of the dead. And they did want anything to do with the resurrection teaching because not only was there debate on the topic among leaders, but if they convinced the people that Jesus resurrected, the revolution that may follow would be a disaster for their religious power, their aristocracy. Not to mention the fact that the potential for uprising would be met with swift Roman military action, because the Romans were the occupiers of Israel. And if the religious leaders could not control their own people, their luxurious way of life would be threatened as well as their very lives. So they had a lot to be afraid of. And, you know, when we become so interwoven in the world, the world system, and the way the world operates, we become a slave to its systems and its financial influence, which produces prosperity. And this is seductive. We all want to make money. We all want to get ahead. We all want to climb that ladder, it seems. But losing our material blessings often is more scary than losing our souls to eternal separation from God. And these religious leaders, they knew the scriptures and the principles of God, but largely ignored them as they contradicted their lifestyles. They had it made. They were wealthy. They were powerful. They didn't want anything threatening that. Verse 3, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Now, what formal charge? They didn't mention, but They had a big problem, and legally speaking, they had no problem with violating the law. This was evident from the fiasco that Jesus underwent. Now they had a brief reprieve from the apostles' influence, or as they saw it, their insurrection. Verse 4, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And we need to remember that during this time, there was an expectation that Messiah would come. They were ready. A few years ago, I was reading an article by a Jewish man who was relating to the coming of Messiah from their perspective. And he made the comment that we don't understand why Messiah didn't come when we expected him to you know, and that was regarding the, the time of Christ. They expected him to come then, but they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Therefore, the expectation of Messiah, they say they just don't understand it. Well, we understand it because Paul said in Romans eleven twenty five that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And that's referring to just that not being able to see that Jesus is the Messiah, but we know he is the Messiah. This is very interesting to me, but it confirmed what I've read in the past and about this particular part of history, they were expecting Messiah. And as God moved the hearts of the people, many came to faith in Jesus as they did here. And in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says, and the word of God continued to increase. So people are learning the word of God. That power of the Holy Spirit is moving and people are accepting the word. They're accepting what the apostles are teaching. They're understanding the Old Testament with more clarity. And it says, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's interesting. Many of the priests apparently heard the call. Not all the priests in this time were corrupt, as we would be led to believe by reading this. And neither were all the Pharisees. And we meet Nicodemus in the Gospels. He's a righteous man. He's a believer in God. Got to remember, God can reach anyone. Really, when you look at it, it's not accurate to say that the Jews rejected Jesus. Many of the Jews did, but the early church was Jewish. All these people we're talking about, these disciples, they're Jewish. It's also not accurate to say that the Jews crucified Jesus. Some of them certainly were responsible for the trial and demand that he be crucified, but really the answer to the question who crucified Jesus is simple. We did. The crucifixion was the means God used to offer Jesus as the final sacrifice for sin. So the angry mob that shouted, crucify him, was simply doing the will of God. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, that's a Father made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And we even see that the will of God was involved in the crucifixion when Jesus himself said in Matthew 26, verse 39, Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Talking about the crucifixion. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus was crucified. It was the Father's will. Jesus was the sacrifice because there was no other way for the sin of the world, which we were responsible, could be paid for. So the Jews get a bad rap by these sweeping allegations that they were somehow responsible for Jesus being crucified. Many of the Jews responded to the gospel and carried it across the known world. And here you see about 5,000 of them coming to faith. And if that number does not include the original 3,000 in chapter 2, then they were already at 8,000 new believers in Jerusalem. That's the power of God. Verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. Verse 6 with Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. So you got all the heavy hitters here. These were the ones present when Jesus was crucified. These are the guys that finagled that bogus trial. So they're all gathered together like, okay, what are we going to do with these men? They're becoming a serious problem, and now they're even invading our most sacred temple with their teaching, and people are following them in droves. How can we stop them? Annas was a very wealthy high priest known even in secular history, and his wealth came from the high taxes he gathered by extorting the people. This is why Jesus flipped the tables over in the temple, because the temple was now turned into a marketplace, and people were getting ripped off when they tried to come and worship God and offer sacrifices. So they had a vested interest in silencing the apostles. And now with 8,000 followers, that ain't going to be easy. Verse 7, and when they had set them in the midst, talking about the apostles, they inquired, by what power? or by what name do you do this? Okay, so now the apostles are on trial, and their question is interesting. By what power or name did you do this? They understood a miracle had been performed that they could not explain. That wasn't the issue. They wanted to know how they did it, and they certainly would have been briefed by someone who listened to Peter that, hey man, they said that in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. So they were likely ready to refute this with whatever they could. They expected it. But what they likely didn't expect is God to speak to them through Peter, which is exactly what happened. The Holy Spirit is now on trial, and he begins his defense. Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, By him, this man is standing before you well. So apparently, the healed lame man was there. Going on in verse 11, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that had to really just blow their mind. Now they're looking at Peter This guy, thinking that he's going to cower being in the presence of such a mighty council. They're like, whoa, what happened to the wimpy Galilean fisherman that fled the scene of the trial? The same thing that happens to anyone who surrenders their life to Christ and obeys him. He got the Holy Spirit fire burning in him. So by what name, you ask? Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah. We often think that Jesus' last name was Christ. It's Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus the Christ, who came from Nazareth. Remember, the one you crucified? Yeah, that one. And by what power, you ask? The power of God, who raised him from the dead. By him, Jesus, this man stands before you well. Oh, by the way, Jesus is the cornerstone spoken of in Psalm 118, verse 22. And the builders that rejected the cornerstone, also mentioned in that psalm, that's you. And your understanding of salvation is whacked. Because the only way to spend eternity with God is through the cornerstone that you rejected. Thank you. Verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, every cool thing I do for the kingdom of God, it's because God does it through me. I can't go up to Jesus and say, Hey, did you see what I did over there for your kingdom? Lord, isn't that awesome? He'd be like, Yeah, I did it through you. Oh, yeah, okay. We can't sit there and brag about our lives, thinking that we bring something to the table that blows Jesus' mind. It's like, No, man. He does it through us. Uneducated, common men, and here they are being totally dominated By a couple of hillbilly preachers from Galilee. And they recognized they had been with Jesus, and now they're like, oh, great. Guys, we got a problem. Yeah, these Galileans, they're the ones that were with Jesus, and now their fanaticism is getting scary. Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. You can't refute it. It's like when you get saved and you're a complete mess and all of a sudden you're in your right mind, things are happening, you're reading the scriptures, God's speaking to you and everyone around you is like, what happened to you? Say, Jesus, oh, you got religion. Yeah, whatever. No, I didn't get religion. I got saved. I'm redeemed. I'm going to heaven. And now the Holy Spirit is in me and he's straightening up my screwy life. They can't say anything in opposition because they see it right there in front of you. You want to have a good witness? You want to be able to lead people to Christ? Make sure your life is on track with the Lord. Watch what he does. Watch how he changes you. Watch how he turns you from a hillbilly Galilean into a bold person that's confronting these higher-ups and putting them to shame. God chose you. If you choose the foolish things to put to shame the wise, that's cool because I qualify. And here they had the lame man standing before them, and these religious leaders very likely knew this man because he was sitting at the temple gate forever. You ever get that sinking feeling that you're nearing defeat, kind of like a football game where your team is behind by 30 points and it's the end of the fourth quarter and you're just like, we're going to lose. I think that's the way they felt. I can't prove that, but anyway. Verse 15, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. Verse 16, saying, what shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them, that's evident, to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. Verse 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Yeah, like, that's going to work. So they're like, what are we going to do? Hey, man, I've I got an idea. How about repenting and praising God for the God who healed the lame man? Nah, let's just threaten them and that'll work. After all, they saw what we did to their leader. Okay, it's settled then. Threats it is. Verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. On behalf of the council of us very powerful, influential, and religious people, we command you no longer to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That is our instruction for you hillbilly Galileans. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered him. Notice that word, but. (laughs) You know something's coming. Whether it's right in the sight of God, to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak, of what we have seen and heard. Peter's saying, it ain't gonna happen. You're not God, and we obey God, unlike you. We must obey what we have seen and heard. Sorry. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all, were praising God for what had happened. And you know, that's crazy because everyone's praising God. It's a cool moment, and they want to quash the whole thing. So they say, get out of here. All these people praising God's making us nervous. You know, what happens when we find ourselves on the other side of God's will? We know we're wrong. The evidence is all around us. We can do nothing except watch those on the right side of God's will rejoice and bask in the hope and the peace of Jesus. It's alarming when you see those whom we consider ourselves better than actually being blessed and happy while we feel miserable, guilty, and awkward. I've been there. That happens in church. You get saved. Things are going. Things kind of cool down after a few years. And these new believers or these old believers that are faithful, God's just doing great stuff. They're always happy. And you're just going, you irritate me because the joy is gone. Why? Because we walk away we walk away from the Lord. Verse 22, for the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The man was lame for a long time. He was not just simply recovering from some injury. He was permanently lame, and it was a miraculous healing, and they knew it. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now, I think it's easy for us to look at this and think that they were all happy and everyone's, you know, praising God, we won, we won, but I don't think so. I think there's something here that we need to consider. Those who were with the apostles, they must have been nervous recalling what happened to Jesus when he appeared before Annas and the leaders. They were no doubt praying for Peter and those who were with him. And when Peter and his company returned, he briefed them on Annas' threats. Okay, and this probably wasn't something that they are like, yeah, let him say that. This is probably something they're like, yeah, this is going to get serious. This would not be something taken lightly. There would likely be those among the group who when they were tempted by this possible persecution would behave in the same way that Jesus described in Matthew 13:20, when he said as for what was sown on rocky ground this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word immediately he falls away so there were probably those kind of people in that crowd especially among the thousands that were being saved. Once they caught wind of it, they're like, yeah, this is going to get bad. Um, I think we should just go home, you know, kind of cool down for a little bit. You know, everything is cool when God begins to move in our lives, but the minute something negative happens as a result of God moving, we have a tendency to cower. Why? Because we have no root. Being rooted in Christ means that we're firmly fixed in our relationship with him. We do this by believing even when it's difficult and spending a lot of time in real prayer. Not superficial words, but a heart that yearns to know God. I need to draw close to Jesus, and I need to establish that root in him. Verse 24, And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So they're doing the right thing. They're praying. And when we look at the scriptures, we find prayer is structured in the same way in several places. God is exalted as creator of the heavens and the earth first. You're putting God where he belongs, his rightful place. That's the head. That is the priority in our prayers. God, you are holy. You are the creator. All things were created through you. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6, You are Lord, you alone, you made the heavens and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth, all that is on it, and the seas and all that is in them. You preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. And you look at the context of those prayers. They're laying it down. Now, when Jesus responds to the disciples back in Matthew chapter 6, when they say, teach us to pray, he says, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. There's the sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth. You're putting God first. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's a structure. It doesn't mean that we just repeat it. It means that this is how we structure our prayer. God, praise your name. You are holy. You are creator God. You are our father in heaven. And you have a kingdom and you have a will. And we pray that that would happen and give us what we need. That's the structure that Jesus gave. It wasn't to recite it. It was to craft our prayers, always putting God at the beginning, giving him the credit that he is due. Verse 25, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, you said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage? And why do people's plot in vain? So they're praying and they're using the scriptures as their basis for their request. Here they cite Psalm 2, acknowledging the rebellion against God that's been around forever. Verse 26, the kings and the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed or against his Christ. So again, going back to the Old Testament, the foretelling of Christ. They continue in verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. There is the, your kingdom come, your will be done. Verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats, give us this day our daily bread, Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Interesting, they didn't ask to be delivered from the situation. They didn't ask for God to rebuke these guys. What they asked for was give us boldness in this situation to continue to speak your word. And this is the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of the believers. They get what's important here. What's important is that that word of God, it goes out. And they're being used to push the word of God out. They know it. They know they're being used by the Lord. Give us the boldness. Give us what we need. Verse 30, While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through your name, through the name of your holy servant Jesus. They asked for boldness to continue to speak his word, so the healing and the signs and the wonders would continue to be performed in Jesus' name. The witness would continue to grow. People would continue to get saved. Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God's in the house. They're refilled with the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 18, it says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't fill yourself up with wine, which is just going to make you stupid. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. When you look at some of the commentaries, some of these commentators that are familiar with the Greek language, they'll tell you that the idea here is not to be filled once, it's to be being filled continually, the way the sentence is structured in the original language. Here in Acts, it appears that they needed to be filled again. And this is important to us to understand because saying that I was filled with the Holy Spirit when I was saved really doesn't mean that I'm filled with the Holy Spirit now. So this filling that they received allowed them to continue in their boldness as they asked. God answered their prayer. And when their prayer was consistent with God's will, lesson to be learned here, if you want your prayers to be answered, make them consistent with God's will. And then you'll see your prayers being answered. If you ask for stuff that's not God's will, then God's going to be like, no. And that's an answer. Verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There was unity in the church. Each person contributed to the needs of those around them so that everyone's needs were being met. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. God was moving and continued to use the apostles who stuck to the simple message, the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Simple. Salvation by grace through faith. Believe in Him who was born, who was crucified, who was raised again, who gives us life. Verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Verse 35. And laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each. As any had need, when the disciples' eyes were on the Lord, material things became less significant to possess. They were now of more value if they could be used to bless others, and this is the heart of Jesus radiating through his disciples. Psalm one thirty-three, verse one: "Behold, how good and pleasant is it when brothers dwell in unity." First Peter three eight. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Verse 36, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we're now introduced to Barnabas, who would later become a traveling companion with Paul, and he demonstrates this brotherly love by selling off his land and giving it to the apostles. And that sets the stage for Acts chapter 5. Thank you.